Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I'm your host, Laura Hersher. The Greenwood Diagnostic Laboratories of the Greenwood Genetic Center have been giving greater care through quality laboratory services for over 40 years. Greenwood helps patients and families solve their diagnostic odysseys through state-of-the-art, comprehensive, molecular, biochemical, and cytogenetic testing. Learn more at www.ggc.org. You know, this, this podcast was meant to be an exploration of the practice of genetic counseling in an era of uh, rapid expansion of genetic and genomic medicine. And one of the things that really attracted me, and I think most genetic counselors to this field, is the blend of science and humanism. Um, I know when you interview applicants who want to be genetic counselors, what you hear over and over is that they fell in love with the science, the fact gathering, the puzzle solving, but they couldn't see a life for themselves in the lab because they needed that contact with people. So patients, patients, while they are a major inconvenience to be sure, are why we do this job. That's why we're in this game. I mean, it's, it's not for the money. So we're the same way here at The Beagle. One of my goals for this podcast from the beginning has been to be sure that those voices are reflected on the program. My guest today is very much a voice of humanism. Rachel Adams is a writer and a professor of English literature at Columbia University. Her latest book was a really wonderful memoir called Raising Henry about her life and her family, which includes a son with Down syndrome. So hi, Rachel. Hi. It's great to be here. Thanks. So listen, because I read and loved, loved, loved the book, Henry's sort of frozen in time for me as like a little guy, like a toddler. But I guess that's probably not happened for you. No, it's not. So much has happened since the book was published. Henry's about to turn 11, and he's in fifth grade. So he's finishing elementary school this year. Amazing. Um, And how's, like, if you were updating the book, tell us us about Henry today. How is he doing? What's what's different? It's interesting to think about how many of the things that I thought were the challenges at the time I wrote the book, which I should explain ends when Henry turns three. So although then there's a sort of um, epigraph where we get up to age five. So, uh, so I, there were all kinds of things that I, I thought would be the challenges that we would be dealing with into his um, childhood and beyond. And so many of those things have been resolved, and there's a whole new host of challenges that we deal with, but also pleasures. So one of the delights has just been to see Henry thrive and develop and really become a person in the way that you observe with any child, where retroactively you can look back and see how all the... um, the signs of their early personhood were there from the beginning, but then you know how the story is evolving only once you see them as a more grown person. Yeah, yeah, it makes more sense. I get that. That's like just a truism of parenting, not not exactly about this parenting, which maybe is a part of your point. A lot of Henry is being a parent, not being a parent of a kid with Down syndrome. Exactly. Um, uh, and how, how different is it from, you have an older son, uh, right? 
You have an older son? I do. I have a, a son who's two years older than Henry, so mm-hmm. he's about to turn 13. And can you compare the experience of being a parent for your older son and being a parent for Henry? I can, absolutely. So, uh, so many of the things are the same, and I feel very lucky that I had an older son, so part of the shock of becoming a parent and learning, you know, you really have to learn on the ground, especially if you're someone like me who had very little experience with children <laughs> until I had my own. Um, so I, I'm, I feel lucky that I had the first child to, to um, practice on to pioneer. <laughs> um, that said, so there definitely are some differences. So Henry's brother, Noah tended to be um, precocious and to have a strong desire for independence, essentially from birth. So he was he was a very grumpy baby until he learned how to walk, and we realized, you know, he's wanted to be able to walk away from us um, his whole life, and now he can. So, and he tended to um, to develop independently as well. So one day we found him in the corner of his room reading a book, and we realized that he had been teaching himself to read. And then one day he just picked up the book and read it out loud to us. And the same with speech. He just started talking one day. And so a lot of his development was fairly invisible. So with Henry... Of course, the same development has happened. Henry talks. He's very verbal, and he reads. But everything is in slow motion. So we see the process broken down. And one of the wonderful things about raising Henry is that we have had so much help. So he's had um, all kinds of therapists who have been supporting him since birth. And so we had speech therapists who were breaking down the process of speech, which is something that really starts from the moment of birth, even though you may not be speaking words until a year or so after that. Um, And then the same thing with reading and his physical development. And so that can be frustrating because it's slowed down. But also when I step back and I think about it, it's also been a fascinating experience to see how it all works Mm -hmm. and to really feel like it was a collaborative process. Mm -hmm. So thanks. That's that's really actually a fascinating observation to me. Um, And, and, but so you've had a lot of people involved in Henry's medical and um, non-medical care. I don't want to like make it all medical. Um, development, raising, education, the education of Henry. Um, genetic counselors, um, for whom I know you have a lot of messages, a lot to say, um, that their role came in the very beginning. And let's like go back and talk about that period of time uh, when you found out that Henry had Down syndrome and... Um, you know, how, how was your interaction with, like, how was the experience with the medical professionals? Like, let's, let's give us a bit of a report card is what I'm asking here. So I, interestingly, I have to say that I interacted with no genetic counselors around Henry's um, care until well after he was born. 
So my story, as if you've read the book, you know this part of my story, but um, is unusual in that I chose to have an amniocentesis when I was pregnant with Noah. So I did go through some very routine genetic counseling where we essentially had done all the reading, we had made the decisions, and then it, it felt like a requirement that we sit for half an hour and go through a script with the genetic counselor. So when I had Henry, I actually declined to do the amnio. So I saw no genetic counselor until after he was born, and the doctors saw um, some physical symptoms that they thought were suggestive of Down syndrome. And so when he was a day or so old, we had a blood test and then genetic counseling um, and genetic testing, which confirmed that it was trisomy 21. And so your first experiences with genetic counselors, what was your impression? So, well, because I had done the amniocentesis with Noah, I really had the idea that a genetic counselor, the main point of talking to a genetic counselor was liability. So they kind of came in with a script and they ran through it and we said all the things that we needed to say about understanding the procedure and that was that. And then because his genetic profile was completely typical, we then had no further contact. So I thought very little about genetic counseling again until I had Henry. And then we saw a a geneticist and a genetic counselor, and we also entered the Down syndrome community where, um, as you can imagine, there's a lot of attention to both the pre- and postnatal attitudes of healthcare providers of all kinds toward people with Down syndrome. So I you know, in my conversations, I started to um, enter into a lot of discussions with families about their prenatal diagnoses and the experiences they had, and then also families like mine who had only learned after the birth. And so I, I came to think a lot about So, so what, I have a question. Um, I have a question I'm going to throw at you, and it wasn't your own experience, and it's a really, really hard question. But I, I want your thoughts on this, Rachel, is that I often think it's not possible to we, – we try to train people to be the just best genetic counselor for everybody, right? That they should walk in the room and be there and whether that person is going to go on to keep that pregnancy and raise the child or end the pregnancy, that you're neutral and you make the person feel supported in both of those options. And I don't know how you walk in and – like. It feels to me like whatever you say for one of those individuals, it's going to be the wrong message, you know? Yes, I don't want to dispute that because I actually think that is true. And I've spent a lot of time investigating both sides. So once I came at it from a parent perspective, I got very involved in what's called the pro-information movement. There's this wonderful woman named Stephanie Hall Meredith at the University of Kentucky who's developed a whole series of pamphlets. You can download them for free. Um, The first one was called Understanding a Down Syndrome Diagnosis, and now there's a bunch of them about various... Yeah, these um, are really good. I'll put a link on the the website. 
Okay. So, um, so the point being that the pro-information movement argues that um, one of the problems with genetic counseling is that, um, is that patients are not given the full information to make their decision-making um, truly a, a balanced choice. And that if people had the full information about a right, prenatal that's, diagnosis... That's the argument. And at minimum, that's true. Like at absolute minimum, um, if, we, if we give only negative information on Down syndrome, we are not serving the community well, right? Like that's sort of the absolute minimum. Um, that is true. But is it enough? But, like is it ever going to well, be enough? Is it possible to do our jobs... Maybe I should end the sentence there. Is it possible to do what we aim to do? Well, that's okay. So I just want to say that I also understand the other side. So the more that I've talked to doctors and genetic counselors, I realize the fine line there is between information and pushing people toward a decision that might involve um, keeping a pregnancy that they might have decided they didn't want. And so this is just to, to affirm that this is an incredibly difficult um, conundrum. And I imagine that's part of why people go into genetic counseling is to navigate patients through this. And I, I would say, I guess the best that one can do in addition to trying to provide um, full information is to listen to the patients and to try to figure out what your patient um, hopes to to get out of being a parent and um, having a, a growing family, the role they imagine the child's taking in their family and the kind of resources they have available for someone who might need extra care. And would you yourself, coming from, you know, your 11 years with Henry, would you... Would you feel like if somebody walked in and said, I'm pregnant, this, this fetus has been diagnosed with Down syndrome, I can't handle this, I'm going to terminate this pregnancy, would you be like, I fully support that decision? Can you do that without a pang? So I would, first of all, yes, absolutely. I, above all else, I think women's um, unrestricted access to make decisions about their own bodies and to end a pregnancy in a safe and legal way is um, a paramount value. That said, I would want to make sure that that person had full information before they made that decision. So sometimes what I see in the medical literature and in the accounts that genetic counselors have available to them is an overemphasis on medical symptoms as a way of describing the child that's going to result from a, a chromosomal difference. Um, and while those things are important, you could say with any pregnancy, if you recount everything that could befall that child from birth to age five, uh, many parents might choose to end a pregnancy even a genetically typical one. So, uh, so what I imagine full information to be is um, information that talks more about the person and as well as all the unknowns, the limits to what a genetic um, result can tell you about the child's 
that you're going to have, who is, um, there's one chromosome's difference. The rest of the chromosomes come from the mother and the father. So the majority of the genetic information um, carried by that fetus comes from the person's own family. So I feel like you're reassuring and, people that, that they're not having, that, that that child is still theirs, their genetic child, that they're not having, like like a child that's been transported from the moon um, because they're this, this other thing, Down syndrome. Is that sort of... Exactly. And this is what I love about the title of Andrew Solomon's book, Far From the Tree, which is about children who are, you know, radically different from their families, you are still from the tree if you're born with Down syndrome. You may fall farther from the tree than other children in the family, um, but you are also a part of the, the parents that um, contributed to your conception. You, so, so you used the word several times difference, which is, which is you know, duly noted, um, Different, you know, difference. We we often try to use words, you know, variant instead of mutation, difference instead of, um, uh, I don't know, mistake or whatever, any negative term. Um, is Down syndrome a disability or a difference? So, well, I appreciate that question, and I do appreciate the way the genetic counseling education has increasingly tried to change the language. Another one I really dislike is risk as opposed to chance, um, which is a value-laden term. That said, um, I do think that there's value in the concept of disability, and perhaps the work to be done is in destigmatizing disability rather. I mean, I think difference just is, is too bland a word, that it doesn't do anything for you. And it is important if someone is making a, a reproductive decision that they understand that there are likely to be um, health consequences that need to be dealt with, um, that it's, it's not a difference. Down syndrome is not a difference like having blonde hair versus having brown hair. That said, I'll tell you the word I really don't like, and this does also come up in the medical context, is disease. That I, I don't think of Down syndrome as a disease. It, I would put it in the class that I, I think of as, as healthy disabled, where you can have a, a disability, you can be deaf or blind or a wheelchair user, and also be perfectly healthy otherwise. And yeah, lead you a also do have life. a risk, and I'm using the word risk here on purpose. You also do have a risk, and it's a risk because for things that are bad, you have a risk for heart disease. Like, that's a risk. That's not a chance. You don't exactly. have a chance at heart disease, you know. Like, exactly. Um, that's significantly increased. So this is, this is this question. Somebody asked me at a party recently. They said, I read these articles saying, like, these new tests – uh, could Down syndrome be eliminated? Uh, what if there? What was um, extinct? Is the word now? Extinct is a very value-laden word. So inevitably, you're saying that something bad has happened. And she said to me, "What would be wrong?" And I'm asking you that question. And it sort of it raised every hackle that I have as a genetic counselor because mm. um, it made me nervous. I think, but then I thought a lot about it. And and let's say. The one reason why that raised my hackles is I thought, 
somebody that thinks that is just disrespectful of these li- like it comes hand in hand with this sense of like are you saying that these lives aren't worthwhile are you saying that we shouldn't be supporting people who have down syndrome or other uh differences or disabilities um but let's say in a pretend world not the freaking one we live in right now where everyone was treated really well and supported and given the resources and it didn't affect any of those things and and all that but simply going forward some fairy dust happened and nobody would have down syndrome would that be a bad thing yeah i that that's a valid question because that is one direction we could go in with all the new testing regimes um, I guess, you know, at, at bottom, I would say, because I, you know, I'm a big reader of like an amateur um, student of genetics, that um, diversity is essential to um, the thriving of, you know, all life forms on the planet. So we should try very hard not to reduce the, the diversity of um, human beings any more than we reduce other kinds of biodiversity. Um, that said, I also think, you know, it's, it's delicate to answer this question because I don't want to fall into all the cliches about what people with Down syndrome are. But I do think in, in my life, Henry has embodied certain qualities and values that are at risk of being lost in our contemporary society, which tends to be all about uh, valuing people, because they're fast, they're productive, and they're intelligent in a very narrow way that amounts to, um, you know, scoring well on a particular kind of test. And those values get reproduced in our parenting. And so one of the lessons that Henry's taught me, and I should say I have lived by those values all my life. Yeah, um, that's how you, that's how you me, get to be a... Co- professor of English literature at Columbia University, (laughs) by the way. Exactly. It's not like wandering down that other path, you know? Yeah. Right. There was no wandering and it was like a clawing into this position. So I, so I I don't want to dismiss those values at the same time that it's, it's taught me to think about um, human worth and what we value in persons and whether we want to live in a society where we decide whether someone should be alive because of their capacity to be productive, because they can do things quickly, because they possess a certain kind of intelligence. And I think absolutely not. And so much as I appreciate the use of genetics and medical technologies to eliminate conditions that are um, associated with pain, suffering, premature death. So I'm not against medicalization. At the same time, I just don't think that I put Down syndrome in that class. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I think the world would be a worse place. If Noah grows up, when Noah grows up, and uh, if he's interested in having a child, would you encourage... Uh, him and his partner to do prenatal testing would you would you want to do narrower prenatal testing than what we normally do would you want to look for only 
conditions that are life limiting at an early age? So, oh, that's you know Noah's thirteen, so <laughs> it's impossible to imagine him even taking a shower, let alone um, having a life partner. That said, um, I, I I hope that I would not um, push him in any particular direction. I do think that he will go into these um, these adventures with a lot more information than most people have. And so he will have full understanding of the choices that he's making. And I, I think... Well, he'll you have know, a lot more choices, <laughs> Rachel. He will have a lot. I think he is likely to have a lot more choices. And to know... Um, the interest behind those choices. So one of the new things that's happened since Henry was born is the commercialization of genetic testing. And so just to understand that it's a huge business and there's profit to be made um, off of uh, making it as ubiquitous as possible. Um, But that also he will understand, you know, what a genetic test prenatally can and cannot tell you and will be able to make his decisions based on, you know, the resources that he has available and the, the kind of family that he imagines having. Um, but but I would never impose on Noah. No, no, I know. Um, I know that I was trying to lead you to sort of say, what would you hope? Not, and I like the same with, I, I know that you would never not want someone to have the option of uh, abortion. I know that you're rights. I know that, I mean, I get that. Like, I get that, that, that you're not going to shove this on your kid. I'm just sort of saying in your own head, like, what would you, you were sort of saying you see Down syndrome as not in maybe the, the list of things that are severe enough um, that we should be focused the way we are laser focused on identifying them so that, you know, um, as and, tar- and in that way, labeling them as the thing we don't want to have. Um, right. I think I think that's one thing with genetic counselors is that we are very devoted to the idea that we will support you in your decision if you have this child with whatever condition we've identified. That sometimes we don't understand what a negative thing it is to identify somebody as having that condition. Like um, we don't walk in to somebody's uh, room and say, uh, I have, have, you know, like we've identified your child as being a redhead. Um, You know, do you want to have a conversation about this? So uh, that there is something, no matter how gently and how carefully and in what perfect language you deliver it, there is something negative about the the testing. Um, Exactly. Well, we tend to go the, the... the testing goes where it's available. So your idea about a condition might change dramatically once there's a test available. So you're saying that you're saying that they're so. going to medicalize redheads. There are going to be that day. I'm a redhead. Maybe. So I'm going to be like, I'm going to be like, <laughs> well, this, this is a ginger baby. You know, you know what they say about them. All right. So I want to. We're running out of time, and there's one other question I really wanted to ask you about because um, I know you pay a lot of attention to this. There are some new therapies. Uh, maybe there aren't now, but there are, are some people working very hard on therapies for Down syndrome. So that becomes a two-part question um, for, for me to throw out at you. And you can just answer this however you want, which is that 
uh, if there were therapies that would uh, affect Henry, like what what would you what would you treat uh, if 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 treating was possible and should that be a part of the conversation? Like when, when somebody now, if we identify a fetus prenatally as having Down syndrome, should we be sort of saying, but you should also realize they may have a different life experience than a child that was born 20 years ago? Uh, yes, of course. So, I mean, any therapy that's designed to um, improve health outcomes, I would absolutely support that. And my understanding of a lot of the research is going toward cognitive treatments, um, whether they're, you know, prenatal drug treatments or um, postnatal. And I guess what I've found in, you know, this is our experience with the available medications, because Henry has ADHD, and he has a lot of trouble in school. And um, he, he does take medication for the ADHD. And it's um, an absolute trade-off. So the medicine allows him to get through the day at school, to learn to his maximum potential and not to disrupt others. At the same time, that it, it definitely changes his personality. So he's not his full self. And he's made very clear to us that he doesn't feel his best when he's on the medication. Yeah, and you so could make, I, I, I mean, that argument you were making in terms of diversity, I mean, we treat, ADHD is a way of treating what might be defined as neurodiversity. Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing, the restlessness, except in context. Yes. Well, in the context, and I, I, I again, I, I'm starting to sound like a libertarian. I don't mean to say, you know, I make no God forbid at all. Um, <laughs> that said, I recognize, you know, I want Henry to go to school. I don't want him to disrupt other people. So, but it's it's just to say that I understand once you start tinkering with the brain and with with um, neuro with neurology you get into some very complicated terrain and um, there's almost always a trade-off. So, um, so it would depend a lot on whether the treatment involves sacrificing some other quality and whether um, you were willing to sacrifice that. Rachel, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming here and for being so honest with us. Um, and uh, I, I, speaking as a genetic counselor, um, this is... Rachel and I have interacted before, and I'm always so appreciative of your experience and your candor and your eloquence. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. It's great talking to you, Laura. And uh, please go to BeagleLanda.com if you're interested. Subscribe, follow me on Twitter, all that jazz. Bye. The Greenwood Diagnostic Laboratories of the Greenwood Genetic Center have been giving greater care through quality laboratory services for over 40 years. Greenwood helps patients and families solve their diagnostic odysseys through state-of-the-art, comprehensive, molecular, biochemical, and cytogenetic testing. Learn more at www.ggc.org.